Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, I'm Simon Long, finance and economics editor at The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Later in the program, the ever-widening gap between US and European bond yields. Can they be explained by fiscal and monetary policy differences? A bigger deficit means more bonds to issue, more bonds to issue means more bonds to buy, and thus investors demand a higher yield for buying those bonds. And tyres. In 2000, the established brands accounted for over two-thirds of the market. Now their share has been deflated to under half. What is clear is that these Chinese tyre companies have taken a big bite out of the market share of the established global brands. But to start... Amazon is a most unusual company. Once a bookseller, it's now the world's leading provider of cloud computing. It peddles goods from Manchester to Mumbai. In America, it accounts for more than half of every new dollar spent online. And as of last month, it's now an Academy Award-winning film producer. All of this has made Amazon the fifth most valuable company in the world. I'm joined on the line from New York by The Economist's consumer and retail correspondent, Charlotte Howard, who's written at length about Amazon for this week's Economist. First, Charlotte, is it possible to characterise what sort of firm it is? Is it a a vertically integrated online retailer or is it a, a new sort of digital conglomerate? I'd argue that it's a new kind of conglomerate. So, yes, it is in some ways an integrated retailer, but it's developed this huge collection of activities, as you say, it of course, has its e-commerce business and cloud computing, but it also is dabbling in all kinds of other industries, sometimes in small ways. It will have a small initiative. For example, it has private label goods like potato chips and shoes and batteries. And then in other ways, it has very big efforts. For example, in video, it's probably going to spend this year more on television content than HBO, which is a very large established player in cable. So it really is a new kind of company. And the reason why it's interesting is that these initiatives all in general, share both a common technology, you know, usually computing and various forms of infrastructure, and they have a basic common goal, which is drawing more and more customers into these big virtuous cycles that, that Amazon has with investments that attract more customers, which then drive future sales, which then gives the company more cash to invest in even more services, which attracts more customers, and so on and so on. So together, this huge collection of activities sort of spins around in this big way that makes Amazon larger and larger with each passing year. That's really interesting. I suppose offline, in the bricks and mortar world, conglomerates are, are rather out of fashion, aren't they? And you seem to be suggesting that some of the obstacles they face in the in the physical world don't apply in the online world. Well, the marginal cost, if you take something like 
AWS, Amazon Web Services. Once Amazon has a given service, it doesn't cost it anymore to deploy that service to another customer. In e-commerce, it's not quite as neat, but even so, Amazon can develop big economies of scale after it's invested in in infrastructure such as warehousing, for example. But one of the things that's really interesting about way, the way that Amazon makes its investments is some of its most important projects begin by serving an existing well-established business. So Amazon, as people know, began as an online bookseller. A few years later, it said that other types of sellers could use its platforms to market their own goods. So it became a platform for other companies to sell goods as well. Amazon then charges those companies a fee, and those those new sellers become a different kind of customer. And Amazon has done this again and again with web services. It, it invested in computing to support its e-commerce business. Then it let other companies use that computing power, and it created a new source of revenue. As it's invested in warehouses, it lets other company rent space within those warehouses, and fees from those other companies continues to grow. So you see this sort of cycle where Amazon invests in something that helps itself in the short term and then opens up that service to others and creates a new source of revenue, which gives it more cash to invest in uh, additional services. As you say, Charlotte, Amazon is growing extraordinarily fast. In that process, is it going to start attracting attention from uh, antitrust competition authorities? That seems quite unlikely because in America, at least, antitrust law has evolved such that regulators are really concerned with a company's effect on consumers and on pricing. And through that lens, Amazon has been an extraordinary success. If you look time and again, it set a new standard for customers in a given area. So with the Kindle, it created an expectation that all of a sudden you could have a huge library of books available for a very low price, $9.99, and you could bring them with you. That changed the way people thought about the number of books they could buy and bring with them and so forth. With its e-commerce shipping, it's changed customers' expectation for time, for how much time they should spend shopping. Other retailers have struggled to match Amazon's standard for free shipping and fast shipping and protect their margins. So if you look across Amazon's business, it's continued to benefit consumers in a variety of ways. And so even as its activities span a growing number of industries and as its power, its market power continues to grow, it seems very unlikely that antitrust regulators will intervene. And how much of Amazon's success, its personality, if you like, can be explained by that of Jeff Bezos, its founder? It is. So he he has powerful deputies. Bezos has powerful deputies in the form of Jeff Wilkie, who runs the e-commerce business, and Andrew Jassy, who runs Amazon Web Services. As a trio, they're all quite private. But Bezos has really been the person who has driven the company forward, of course, since its inception, and he continues to be very involved. And one of the things that's interesting about Amazon is that even as it seems to morph year after year as its services continue to expand, actually its mission has remained quite steady. And it's remained that that Bezos laid out back when it was founded in the 1990s. And that is to be Earth's most customer-centric company, which seems to most impossibly vague. But it actually does describe what Amazon does quite well. That is, it invests in new ways to attract more and more customers and keep them. 
and its definition of customers continues to expand. Often its its own best customer, as I said, it invests in services that serve its main business, and then it opens that service up to new customers in the form of other companies. So his mission actually has remained relatively steady, and it continues to carry the company forward. He Another one of his favorite tropes is to talk about how Amazon is at day one, and it's just getting started. And you do get the sense that the company thinks it has a long way to go ahead of it, and investors certainly think so as well. My thanks to The Economist's consumer and retail correspondent, Charlotte Howard. Next, we turn to the financial markets, and in particular to sovereign bonds. America is the world's largest economy, and its currency, the dollar, is strong and widely expected to strengthen further. Yet it costs its government more to borrow money than it does Germany's, Britain's, France's, and even Italy's. Indeed, the spread or gap between American and German 10-year bond yields is now more than two percentage points. I'm joined by The Economist's capital markets editor and Buttonwood columnist, Philip Coggan. Philip, can, can you give us some perspective here? How unusual is it for there to be this sort of gap in bond yields? It is unusual, Simon. It's not since the 1980s that we've had a gap this wide. And for much of the time since then, the gap has been less than a percentage point, And indeed, sometimes... German bonds yielded more than American. And I think there are a couple of reasons why it's widened out so much. The first is a policy difference between the US and Germany. So in the US, the Federal Reserve has already started to raise interest rates. There are three interest rates increases already being pushed through and more expected this year. And the Fed stopped buying bonds some time ago. But in Europe, the European Central Bank is still buying lots of bonds uh, and its interest rate is, in one uh, account, negative. So there's a substantial gap between the short-term rates of the US and Germany and because people expect that to persist, that makes sense. They demand a higher long-term rate for lending to the US as well. And there's also a gap in fiscal policy. The US, under Donald Trump, is planning big tax cuts and infrastructure spending that should make for a much bigger deficit. A bigger deficit means more bonds to issue, more bonds to issue means more bonds to buy, and thus investors demand a higher yield for buying those bonds. And who are those investors? You've mentioned the European Central Bank is a big buyer of bonds, but who are the other big buyers? Well, in Europe, there's a very important role played by pension funds and insurance companies, and regulations mean they have to buy bonds to match their assets, the bonds they own, with the liabilities, that is the requirement to pay pensions to old people and to pay insurance claims when they come up. And the way it works is that the more bond yields fall, the more their liabilities rise, which means they need to buy more bonds. And as they buy bonds, that pushes bond yields down even further. So a couple of years ago, German insurance companies were buying 40% of that year's crop of new German government bonds. There's not the same influence in America, pension funds and insurance companies. So this may be a factor keeping German bonds unusually low. And how do the different politics of Europe and America play into all this? Well, the big challenge at the moment is the French presidential election. So for much of the 2000s, German and French government bond yields were pretty similar. When people joined the euro, there was perceived to be not much difference in the risk between lending to the French and German governments. But we saw risk re-emerge in parts of the eurozone with the Greek crisis 
and with Italy and Spain, and now with Marine Le Pen as one of the likely two candidates in the second round of the French presidential election, she has said she would like to re-denominate French government debt in francs instead of euros. That would mean a big loss for international investors. So some of those are choosing to buy German bonds rather than French bonds. That means there's a gap between the yields of those two. That's helping push down German yields pushing up French yields and widening that gap again between Germany and the US. Is there an analogy here between these low European bond yields and those in Japan, where where the central bank's struggling to keep 10-year bond yields at around zero? Uh, But Japan's a country, of course, that's been trapped in low-growth deflation for for decades now. Are, Are the bond markets saying that's going to happen in Europe? I think there are some investors who fear that. The eurozone has uh, been through, of course, periods of worries about its long-term growth for a while, ever since that big crisis in 2010. And things could go disastrously wrong. But if you look at the forecast for things like inflation in the 2020s, this inflation expected to be about 2.1% in the US, about 1.6-1.7% in the eurozone. That's not a big enough gap to suggest that Europe is heading for the kind of problems that Japan has suffered. And growth forecasts over the next year or so aren't that divergent between the US and the eurozone either. So I, I think it's more these short-term differences in policy and the political worries and, of course, that institutional drive, the German insurers, that explain the gap. Philip Coggan, Buttonwood, thank you very much. If you have any thoughts on what you hear on Money Talks, do get in touch. You can contact us on Twitter, at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com, which is exactly what Mark Adams has done. He's been giving a good deal of thought to the subject of the finances behind Olympic host cities. Host City is bidding on hosting for two consecutive Olympics. This would provide a better return on the infrastructure investment. Or multiple permanent host cities that would be used to retake the Games globally. Perhaps two, one summer, one winter, in the Americas, Europe and Asia. Perhaps additional regions might be needed, but the permanence could ensure a reasonable return, better maintenance and possibly better infrastructure. Thanks, Mark. We appreciate you taking the time to get in touch. Finally, let's talk rubber. The big tyre makers could once divide a growing market amongst themselves. But as in so many businesses, this has become a story of mounting competition from China. In 2000, the top five global manufacturers, that's Bridgeton, Michelin, Continental, Goodyear and Pirelli, accounted for over two-thirds of the market. Now it's under half, as China's tyre makers have made inroads into a business that's reliably profitable. I'm joined in the studio by The Economist's industry editor, Simon Wright. Simon, is it possible to describe what what does the Chinese tyre industry look like? Is it big state-owned enterprises, small private manufacturers? It's very much the latter. uh, There's some disagreement among the uh, global tyre executives about how many Chinese tyre companies there in fact are. Some say 250. Some could say it could be many hundreds more. But what is clear is that these Chinese tyre companies have taken a big bite out of the market share of the established global brands. And they've done so in a part of the market that's very profitable for them. The tyre makers provide tyres to two sorts of buyers, the big car makers for their new cars and the replacement tyre market. And the replacement tyre market 
is a much more profitable enterprise. The big car makers, of which there are a few, can strike a hard deal with the tyre makers, and the tyre makers want to get their tyres onto those cars because, in the first instance, people are inclined to replace like with like, so there's sort of a stickiness. But in the replacement market, the Chinese tyres, which are much, much cheaper, have been pushed by the distributors. The distributors are much more fragmented and have much less market power, but the Chinese tyres are much more profitable for them. So they've been pushing these Chinese tyres on, onto the cars in the replacement market. And are they competing just on price and, and doing it out of China? Or are they, as in some other industries, looking to invest overseas, start making locally? Well, it's been mainly on price. So the Chinese tyre makers have started to come overseas. Uh, Pirelli, one of the big Chinese tyre makers, was bought by Chem China, which uh, has a tyre making arm of its own. And that's partly because of the way the tyre market is going to develop. The big global tyre makers are fighting back. Uh, there are two reasons. One, oddly, is that uh, raw material prices are going up. Because that's such a, a much smaller part of the costs of the big global tyre brands, they won't have to put up their costs quite as fast. The second is the trend for SUVs, which have much bigger tyres. Over 17 inches, the market is dominated by these big global brands. But in America last year, for example, over 50% of the cars were SUVs. And even modest cars now have very big tyres on them. And that's also helping the global brands. The small Chinese tyre makers have been cutting prices, cutting profits, and have very little money to invest in new plant to, uh, to provide these big tyres. So is there also a quality issue in so many industries that people look at the Chinese product and say, yes, it's cheap, but it's not as good? Very much so. And this should also play into the hands of the established brands. Chinese tyres are not as good. They wear out more quickly. They don't stop as well in the wet or even in the dry. As in the future, we have autonomous cars and ride sharing and car sharing becomes increasingly more popular. Tyres will be increasingly bought by fleets. Fleet managers do a total cost of ownership calculation and they can work out that, in fact, the tyres from the big established brands are a better deal. You mentioned that the big global manufacturers are fighting back. How well are they doing? Well, it's unclear at the moment. They seem to have stabilised. They're not losing market share anymore. And with luck, I think they will hope to start to regain it. My thanks to The Economist's industry editor, Simon Wright. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist.